Welcome everyone, thank you very much for coming. Uh, my name is Russell Martin, I'm the director of ArtQuest and also an artist. Uh, we welcome to this, the second of our six talks uh, in the System Failure series, uh, being held here at Block 336 Gallery, which is an artist-led gallery and studios. Um, it's entirely artist-led and unfunded, and the bar supports the exhibitions programme, so you can drink with good conscience. <laughs> the System Failure series begins with the premise that the art world is a human-created system and therefore is imperfect. Uh, so what we're trying to do over this series of talks is to find ways to improve it uh, and to keep a kind of solutions-focused um, like solutions focused heads on. So it's, there will be a certain amount of identifying the issues and the problems, but I don't want to, to just turn into a big hour-long moan. So we do want to kind of try and find suggestions and solutions to improve things. Uh, it's also to help artists become more familiar with some of the issues in the kind of wider art sector and also to encourage uh, some collective action from artists as well. So it's, it's quite easy as an artist to see the art world as something that is done unto you rather than something that you have an active role in. The art, the art system, the art world system is, includes artists and we are all uh, implicated in how it's run. Uh, so these events will be in conversation events. Once I stop talking, we'll hear from Duncan Smith from ACOVA and uh, Kirsten Dunn from the Greater London uh, Authority. And they'll each talk for about five or ten minutes uh, about the topic. And then I'll chair a, a short conversation amongst us here and then we'll open it out to you. So if you have questions or comments or things you want to add, there'll be time uh, for that during the event as well. Just also to point out that there's it's slightly an artificial way to talk about the arts funding system, the arts system, because it is a system. So by just hiving off one bit, we can't just talk about that. We will inevitably talk about lots of other things. And so a bit of crossover is inevitable and fine. Um, so today we'll be talking about uh, cities and urban regeneration and how artists might be able to impact on that or make greater benefit out of it. There's a lot in the air at the moment about urban regeneration and artists. There was a talk at the Freeze Art Fair called Can Artists Still Afford to Live in London? Uh, there's the Greater London Authority London Regeneration Fund, which has been going, and also this book, The A to Z of Planning and Culture, uh, which is a kind of a guide and an aid to uh, councils and artists about how to work with the planning system to uh, help help them achieve their aims through various bits of regeneration that's going on. There's also from uh, ACOVA, the, there's been some studios that have had to have been handed back to the developer that owned them, which, and there's been a lot of conversation about that. Uh, also, the Greater London Authority did a report, which I'm sure we'll refer to at some stage, uh, which predicts 30% of affordable studios disappearing in the next five years, uh, which is obviously quite alarming. Obviously, regeneration isn't just about studios, it's also about accommodation, so we'll be, talk we'll be talking a lot about the whole range of, of issues around regeneration. Uh, and there's a particular London focus to what we're talking about, because it's where we're all sitting, but also because London is a, a very important international arts hub. Um, but artists tend to be the lowest wage earners in the art world, and the art world is not a terribly high wage earning economy at the best of times. And there's also uh, a kind of assumption in the art world that 
artists are in some way the, the avant-garde of regeneration, that they go into where areas that are kind of horrible and make them nicer, and then people come in and open up posh coffee shops, and then they get priced out. So we want to kind of test some of that, because uh, in conversations with Duncan before, there's not a huge amount of research to back that up, because it's quite a difficult thing to quantify. But it does seem to be in the art world psyche, so we'll be um, hoping to, to test out some of that, some of the implications around that. Obviously, regeneration is a very complex field uh, with hugely different priorities from local government and central government, from private developers, social housing, uh, artists, artists who are often employed in development and regeneration projects to help work with communities and make them more amenable to the regeneration. There's, in London, in a London context as well, there's international finance, international investment in the housing market that does strange and unpredictable things to the, to the um, housing market. Uh, so what we ultimately want to do is explore what the place of artists within regeneration is, what it should be or what it might be, what benefits artists might be able to gain from that kind of um, engagement with the process and what we can do about maximising those kind of benefits and gains for artists. And I do want to focus quite specifically on artists. Uh, obviously we'll be talking about organisations and institutions as well, but I think the focus should, we should try and keep on artists as well. So without any further ado, I'd like to hand over to Duncan Smith, who's the director of Akaba Studios and also director of the National Federation of Artist Studio Providers. And an artist. And an artist. Thank you. And an artist, <laughs> yes. I always forget that. Very important. I want to start by uh, examining the word regeneration. What do we actually mean by it? Because it's very easy, very glibly to say, artists go into places, punch them up, and then people come and uh, they get gentrified. I don't think it's quite the whole story. So I want to try and unravel that a bit and to start by looking at the, the concept of regeneration. At one time, I was a zoologist, and I first came across the, the notion of regeneration uh, in biology. Regeneration in biology means the ability of genomes, cells, organs, individuals, and ecosystems to repair themselves, to reconstruct themselves according to the way they always were and ought to be, without the interference of external or, or internal uh, entropic factors. So actually, the word in, in that context is a, is a conservative term. It's about maintaining uh, the status quo, maintaining things that they're supposed to be. Once the, the term gets applied to cities, something else happens. Russell's already referred to human fallibility. Well, that's actually what happens. When it comes to cities, uh, the term regeneration is about our ability and our efforts to change the city for, not to maintain it, but for the better. Cities change, and urban regeneration is about, it's supposed to be about, making the function better. It started out as part of, or it started out, the, the, uh, the drive to do this started out under the rubric of urban renewal, which eventually became urban regeneration. And what it meant was relocating businesses, relocating populations, using government uh, finance to purchase wholesale properties that uh, needed to be changed in some way, 
and generally to restructure the, uh, the uh, locality in the interest of human progress, or at least the progress of the city. Um, and being fallible, of course, it sometimes worked, but sometimes it didn't work. Um, it was supposed to be an economic engine uh, and a reform mechanism. But it's also seen as a mechanism, or could be seen in some cases, as a mechanism for control. It enhances environments and communities, but it also destroys neighborhoods. At its best, regeneration is about doing the best we can to make the best out of, out of the place, and I'll come back to it. But in fact, it's not even what regeneration means to most people these days. Regeneration these days tends to mean the free market uh, operating within relaxed planning constraints. It means actually a reduction in the amount of control that the city and state is exercising and freeing up the market to do what it will. Humans are fallible but at least they try to do things that are fairly complicated, which is why they fail. The market is not so complicated, and what it's trying to do is fairly short-term and usually fairly disastrous for, for the broader uh, good. So, having tried to look at what we mean by regeneration, we come to the question of... Um, I've got to quote the second part of the what we're supposed to be addressing, what part do artists really play in the regeneration of cities, and how might they combat being priced out of studios and homes. First thing you have to recognize is that artists aren't particularly highly regarded. It's a shame, but it is a fact that for most of the population, and most politicians were fairly irrelevant. I tested this myself some point in the 1970s. I went down to uh, the park on the road in Shepherdsburg with a clipboard, and I had a list of things that people might find important. Money, uh, food, sex, and so on. Health. And in the list of about ten things was art. A surprise, bottom of the list, almost invariably, art. And then I, I talked to people. I also took a photograph of them, so I did put it up on the walls and part of an exhibition notice. And I asked them, so what do you do in the evenings? Or oh, what do you tell them? Is that art not involved in that? I listen to music. I go to concerts, I watch films, and so on. So actually when you buy read books, what? turns out is that people actually identify art with some kind of making of pretty pictures on easels, and they don't see that actually they're surrounded by it, and that it is an essential part of culture, an essential part of their lives. So we have to be realistic that actually part of the problem is that the importance of art is not as widely recognized as it ought to be. And we need also, I think, to recognize that art is regeneration. Art is about individual regeneration in the first instance. It is about uh, restoring this restoring our, our well-being. So it's 
regeneration in that conservative sense, but it's also regeneration in a radical sense, like the urban regeneration I was just talking about, in that it gives us the opportunity to think differently, to promote, to promote new ideas, and to function differently as an individual. So it has a, a restorative, a regenerative function for the individual, uh, but it is also, it also has, as well as that intrinsic value, it also has enormous instrumental value. That is, it's not only a good in itself, it is also something which contributes to a lot of other things. First of all, I'd argue that it's at the core of cultural development. It is the way in which culture is examined, maintained, but also changed. It's at the core of our economy. One of the few successful industries, if, you, if we dare to call it that, still annoys me, that we have. It is at the core of education. What is art? It's about creativity. It's about saying, I see the world a bit differently. That's about the inventiveness and if you want to get, if you want to talk in business terms, the entrepreneurialism that says we can do things a bit, a bit different. It's about health. Everybody knows that these days there's a kind of well-being agenda as we all become obsessed with our longevity and how fit we are. And people understand that art is, is very much a part of that. It's about placemaking, it's about all kinds of other, other things apart from those intrinsic values. The next thing I want to say is about the, the role of artists, and in particular arts organisations, although we're not going to spend too much time talking about them, uh, in the regenerative processes of the kinds I was talking about before. Many arts organisations, and therefore many artists, have benefited for a long time from regeneration programmes. My own organisation has been working with regeneration programmes for 20 years. We built our current headquarters building at 24 Studios to go with it, with funding that came from the single regeneration budget. We became, in 2000, a partner in a regeneration scheme, that is, not just applying to regeneration, you know, we can do something helpful, but we were recognized as a core part, a key player, in the regeneration program that was called Action Act in 2000. We continue to, uh, to work with regeneration bodies. We're currently working not with a government sanctioned or set up or finance program, but with a local program in Stoke-on-Trent, where we're terribly concerned to regenerate the city around the development of some alternative to the populace which have all gone. That's a, a regeneration program which sees art at its core. One of the sad things is that the recognition of the importance of art in regeneration is almost in inverse proportion to the distance from the centre of London. The further you go from the centre of London, the more people think, ah, uh, art could be helpful in producing creative industries. So there has been a lot of collaboration with regeneration, and we can't just say regeneration is bad for artists. Good regeneration can include artists. We also need to recognise that developers 
whom we all hate, also at times collaborate with artists. There have been lots of examples of developers who've seen the benefit of working with studio providers, generally because it uh, casts a good light on their program and their, uh, their development. But they also get involved in, at that point where the state agencies and capital come together to decide what's going to happen to a court of the city. Uh, and that is in the area of planning gain. Planning gain is where a local authority, who still, despite the relaxation of the planning laws, has some control over what people build where, says, okay, you can, you can build your 96-story block, but the bottom floor of it, or perhaps the basement, uh, has to provide some kind of public benefit. And under those sorts of programs, quite a lot of projects have been successful. And there are quite a lot of studios around, uh, including some that we've produced which are collaboration with developers. Although in truth in my experience it's more like working with developers who feel extremely impinged upon by uh, local authority stipulations about section one and six agreements. However, despite the fact that many of us have tried very hard to work with planners, with local authorities, even with developers, the fact is that London is in a bad way. The fact is that a city of eight uh, and a half million people uh, is, in my view, seriously threatened by the way in which it is developing. Property prices, have gone up. Planning laws make it easier for developers. We'll talk about that later. And to quote uh, one of um, Kirsten's colleagues, um, Munira Mirza, as you already did, one third, and I'm saying this is not just my view, although actually she found out by coming to talk to one of the West studios, uh, but it is she was satisfied with the evidence that she had had that one-third of studios in London will disappear uh, over the next five years. Five years. Four already now. Four years? Four. Four now. I mean, it was a year ago. That was a year ago. <laughs> Three <laughs> They're going. Yeah. yeah. It's the yeah. point. Yeah. Uh, she also uh, went on to say that um, the GLA would be using its planning powers, I'm reading with this so I get it right, to insist that commercial developers work to protect cultural venues. Perhaps Kirsten can say something about that later on. So, what about uh, the artists? Coming back to the artists again. Um, coming back first to the studio providers. We have tried very hard, not just to provide studios, but we've tried very hard to change the environment within which studios either happen or don't. That is to advocate on behalf of studio development. Uh, the National Federation of Artist Studio Providers was set up uh, in 2012. No, it wasn't. It was 2008. It, it lost its funding in 2012. And its aim was to bring together those of us who have been doing this for an awfully long time uh, in order to 
ensure that the kind of knowledge which we stumbled into, most of us being artists, never having expected to do the kind of things we were doing, that that knowledge and experience uh, was passed on and that uh, people didn't keep making the same mistakes again. That was one aim of NFAS. Another aim was to advocate on behalf of studios. That is, to try to tell those people who make decisions, you need to be thinking about studio provision because it is really important for transmitters. Unfortunately, uh, funding ceased in 2012, and NFAS continues to exist, and we continue to do what we can, uh, but actually the advocacy function is severely limited by the fact that we now consist of a group of directors, all of whom have studio organizations to run and are incredibly busy. Nevertheless, we do try to uh, advocate on behalf of studios whenever we can. We take part in fora, uh, which are set up by local authorities, GLA. We talk to arts officers, planners, in the, in the course of our work, and to politicians and try to promote uh, studio development. Can I just say one minute, one or two more minutes? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can condense. We'll, we'll come back to more through the conversation as well. I'll, I'll stop very, very soon. <laughs> uh, what can artists do themselves, individually? Uh, maybe we have to do what artists have often done and let's go somewhere else. There is a big appeal in going to Berlin, it's a great city. Studio practice is about a third. Or you could go to Birmingham, uh, where studio practice is a half. Um, that would help a lot. And of course, it's not only studio prices, it's also the price of accommodation and, and, and living. But assuming that we don't want to do that, we don't want to go, have to go somewhere else, what are we going to do? First of all, I suggest that all artists have a responsibility to understand the sector better, to actually try to understand what they are intrinsically a part of, as Russell said, an essential part of a big, complicated system. We need to understand it better. We need them to collaborate to change it. We need to individually promote the value of the arts, the chief executive of the Arts Council, Jared Henley, said people who work in the arts have a moral responsibility to become school governors. I'm in support of the idea, at least, that we ought individually to be trying to promote the value of uh, what we're all involved in. We need, as artists, to understand the role of studio providers. And do I have time to finish with one small, small anecdote? To which, you, to which you referred. Give, it, give us an anecdote. That yeah. is. Back in I've heard your anecdotes, they're good. Back in around <laughs> 2000, uh, we looked at some premises in Kramer Street in Hackney. To convert them would be expensive, and we went to a regeneration agency, uh, Renacid, and said, give us some money. They said, we're not entirely sure that artist studios are part of the regeneration project. Uh, we think that artists are just taking advantage of, advantage of buildings uh, before they get properly reused. We said, go on. They said, okay. They gave us some money, we developed the buildings, and 15 years later, 
those buildings are now threatened by redevelopment. The problem that, as a studio organization, we faced was that while utterly sympathetic to the artists who wanted to rush about the streets saying this is an outrage, and while agreeing with them, they misdirected their anger. You can't be angry with the, with the owner of the premises that he is a capitalist who wants to make as much money out of it as he can. That's how he functions. In fact, in that case, the, uh, the owner was a kind of decent guy who was always fair, and in fact, because he was so impressed by what we did, he went off and set up some of his own studios in Woolwich and financed them entirely. So, attacking him wasn't right. Uh, who should be attacked? The local authorities? They're constrained by planning rules. So we need to understand all of that uh, much better. And finally, <laughs> cities change, is what I've been saying. Paris is once an important centre of the visual arts. There's no particular reason why London should continue to be so. But if it is, uh, we need to ensure that people understand better what a proper regeneration program would be, what the role of the arts is in that. And that means political change, which is only going to come about by the education of the public and of the politicians. And that's where we're going. Thank you very much, Duncan. Thank you. Um, Kirsten, how do, you, how do you follow that? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Uh, that was great. I can thank you. <laughs> just taking us through the I'm whole thing. <laughs> can I just ask, how many people here are artists? Okay, great. I'm just trying to get a sense of who's in the room. Yeah, mm -hmm. and you. Oh, not me. I'm like the only one. Um, okay. I, I wondered whether it would be helpful because you, you guys have you've referred to, to me working for the Greater London Authority a couple of times, and I think that's one of the kind of least understandable terms in. Um, in a way to refer to us, but we're, I work for the Mayor of London, basically, and um, so, so, and the Greater London Authority is, um, is responsible for a kind of a strategic overview of London, and then obviously with certain, in, in certain areas carries specific and statutory responsibility, including things like transport and policing and planning, um, but not including, for example, culture. Um, so I work for the culture team and the mayor has a statutory obligation to produce a cultural strategy for London but technically no actual obligation to carry out any of that strategy. Um, and I think that probably gives you a little bit of an illustration of what my day looks like <laughs> because um, we spend in the culture team we spend a lot of our time um, trying to figure out how we can work best with our colleagues across transport, across regeneration, across planning to make sure that um, that culture is everywhere within within everything that happens without actually us having any, in a sense, right to do that. Um, and that and, and so that's, that's kind of quite an important thing, I think. And I talk about, I probably will tend to talk about culture rather than artists. And I think probably to say at the beginning that I have a very wide-reaching understanding, we in the team have a very wide-reaching understanding of culture. Um, because and, and, and in a sense, this is I'll talk more about it, but this is becoming more and more important, I think, the kind of wide breadth of culture. Um, because so it, it, we have certain um, we promote creative industries, and by those I mean the kind of classic creative industries of film, um, television, design, fashion, 
um, gaming, for example. Um, but we also promote visual art. Um, I, I manage the fourth plinth program on Trafalgar Square, which is clearly, you know, the most visible, um, one of the most visible things that the mayor probably does, and actually from a cultural perspective, and and I think a very visible symbol of how important art is actually to London, um, in the centre of London. And but we also look at, we also look look a lot at what, is, what are other aspects of culture. Um, skate parks, um, inform, what you might call informal culture, um, maybe even street art. Um, we don't necessarily want, you know, that, that, that doesn't, is not helped by having formal recognition, so we don't really do that. But, um, and, and so we're kind of, and, and within that, and I think this is something that's come up before, is that understanding that what we're talking about here is a mix and one part doesn't function without all the other parts. And a lot of what I spend my time doing within the GLA and what my colleagues spend a lot of time doing is talking, is trying to get people to understand the complexity of that mix and the interrelation of that mix and, and kind of the success of it and how important it is to have every single component of that mix for the whole thing to really work together very well. So. You know, you, you, you were talking about not liking the kind of industry term, creative industries term, I suppose. But that argument, I think the argument of the economic impact of the creative sector um, has, I think, now been well understood quite broadly. Um, but what hasn't been well understood is that you can't have, um, you know, you can't have kind of well-known artists filling the tape if you don't have all the other artists plowing away, everybody doing, you know, doing all the work that they do, which maybe isn't directly market-focused, was never meant to be market-focused, isn't being made for that purpose, but actually is extremely crucial to sustaining the rest of the kind of creative network that there is. Um, and, and again, this is something that I think is becoming more talked about. I'm really happy I've been hearing it a lot in fashion circles recently, actually, that you know, a, a lot of the time you hear about fashion clusters and and now people are really starting to talk about, well, you know, it's really important that there are visual artists in that mix because, you know, when a fashion designer suddenly has to do a window somewhere that is really important to their career, they then rely on the kind of techniques and the, and the availability of visual artists to help them with those kind of installations and so on. So um, that's, it's, a, it's a really helpful thing and it's a really kind of, in some ways, a really simple thing, but actually, you know, I guess that's what case studies are all about and that's why we keep coming back to case studies because they are really beautiful illustrations of actually how the system works, how complicated it is, but how kind of important it is to have all of those different components. And but I suppose I also just wanted to say, put, put, give some perspective, which I'm um, just reading from this book. In the next uh, few years, by 2022, uh, visitor numbers to London will have increased to 21 million. Um, we will need 1.5 million more homes um, 600 more schools and colleges, 50% of an increase in public transport capacity, 20% increase in energy supply capacity, 9,000 more hectares of accessible green space, um, and 10% more green cover in central London. So those are the things that the city has to deal with. Um, and we have to think about, you know, where, where amongst those things and where in regeneration and growth do we sit and how do we make that work 
and how do we balance and sense those kind of um, you know competing demands but actually not really competing demands I would argue and so that's something that again that, that in the culture team we spend a lot of time doing and the other thing I wanted to talk about is this this is um, I did want to wave this is the A to Z of planning and culture it's really important because it's been an incredibly successful collaboration between the culture team and the planning teams um, and, and, and various other partners, including local authorities, you know, and um, who've been involved in this. And it's very important because it shows that, um, that planning can be beneficial to culture um, and that it can be considerate of culture. And it takes a very wide view of, the, of culture. But it also really, I mean, we call this an age set of planning culture, but really what this is about is about London's character. And it's about trying to understand that you know, how to not lose um, the, the kind of individuality of different areas, the, the important aspects of what makes London, London, within, within the whole kind of mix of where we have to go, how many people we have to accommodate, how much more green space we have to create. So, um, and I think character is a word that we use more and more often and that we're really trying to kind of try, um, that we're trying to uh, make people more aware of and understand a bit better that... Um, having needing loads of new housing is one thing, but how do you kind of create personality and how do you keep personality within an area and how do you make sure that you're reflecting the things that people actually value most? Great. That's me. Thank you, Kirsten. Any responses or am I, am I allowed to use my brogue? Yeah, go for it. Uh, so much to talk about. Um, uh, I was at the talk at Freeze Art Fair, and I know you were as well, um, uh, called um, Can Artists Still Afford to Live in London? And the focus of that turned out to be why, the panel were talking about why it's important that artists live in London. And there was, there was talk about Tate, as you mentioned, and there was talk about the, kind of the, the instrumental things that you were talking about as well, Duncan. Um, and I was wondering if it might be interesting to think, because we've mentioned Tate, we've mentioned instrumentalisation again, so I, I thought I'd bring this up to begin with, that it might be important for London that artists live there, but is it important for artists to live in London? How important is London to artists? Um, does, you know, that it was talked about also at that talk that um, Tate couldn't function without artists, but Tate actually couldn't function without public funding, without an international collection, without tourists paying for the exhibitions. I'm not so... Certain functions would be very much diminished without artists, but it would still trundle along quite happily. So I'm wondering if, 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 going back to what you were saying as well, if artists maybe should just cut their losses and get out of town. <laughs> we can maybe start there. Great. I think it would be a great shame. Uh, because I live here, and, and I like London, and I'd be a great shame if everybody disappeared. I think it's important to look at the... I think it is important that artists get together. I think it's critical that uh, artists have the opportunity to be present in the same place for considerable lengths of time, living, working together, creates a kind of bubble sometimes within which ideas can spark. I think that isolated artists suffer from that isolation and that 
the left bank in Paris or uh, Soho in New York or Notting Hill actually when I came to London first uh, function as places where, where artists are in close proximity and sharing their madness if you want to look at it that way I think that that is critical it doesn't have to be London from the artist's point of view but it has to be somewhere mm -hmm. and while I think that artists are going to become much more dispersed I think that there will be artists in Stoke-on-Trent and Leicester and Margate and all the other places. I think that it is still important for artists to get together in a kind of metropolitan space where they can misbehave really badly. And uh, I think we would miss that. Well, and there are fairly well-established artist communities around England or in Scotland, Glasgow and Sheffield and Liverpool and Nottingham. And there's a lot of other artist communities around the country. I'm just wondering if there's something... I really want to try and nail down to begin with what it is about London. Okay, there are things like Tate and Freeze Art Fair, but Freeze Art Fair is an international art market thing. I wonder how many artists in London actually it has much of an impact on, apart from the ones who are, you know, have galleries there, but they could be anywhere. So I'm wondering what it is specifically about London. Do you have anything? Well, I mean, um, it's a difficult question, isn't it? I mean, I can a, say why I like question. living in London, yeah. you know, and that's that's kind of all the kind of reasons that you would think, right? And but uh, I mean, okay, so the one thing that I would hear from people, if and this is this is just one aspect that came to mind, is there's an economic imperative, right? So you know, yes, there's an art market in London that, to a certain extent, operates at a level that is is maybe higher than most artists are, you know. But on the other hand you're never going to get a collector to come to your studio if you live even, I mean, you know, even if you live in the outer London boroughs or if you're working in the outer London, it already becomes problematic to get a collector to come to your studio. So, so there is a question of kind of agglomeration, you know, that, that these kind of cluster activities that actually are relevant for other industries also, particularly creative industries, but um, that, that surely are relevant for artists, I would have thought. So that's kind of, that's one aspect. But I think also that presumably, um, you know, you, you when, and this is the argument, uh, certainly an argument that I make, is that, you know, you want to be where the critical debate is and where it is being carried out in the form of exhibitions and talks like this one and, and kind of interaction between writers and curators and all of those things that actually inspire you know, inspire and kind of rejuvenate practice, I would have thought. Mm -hmm. and, but, you know. Agreed. I would, I would add two other things. I think looked at historically, the reason that, uh, that London is such an important art centre is, first of all, as, as Kirsten says, it is an important art market. Secondly, it has a splendid tradition of art schools going back to the 19th century. And I think Britain as a whole has benefited from that and and London in particular, whether that is surviving the uh, modern trends is, a, is a, an issue for debate. And thirdly, I think the huge number of buildings which were left in London with the war, containerization, and the general um, changes to the uh, British economy left an enormous amount of space which artists could occupy very cheaply. I think that those, those things combined to create the... Uh, the focus that uh, made London as important as it is. The question is whether all those things will remain. Will the art market remain in London? I suspect that uh, Beijing is doing quite good trade right now. 
the art schools are certainly under threat and uh, the buildings are disappearing. So, uh, Well, the buildings are a particular, obviously a particular focus for this discussion. Um, and, but I also uh, was struck by what, again, most of you, Duncan, but you also spoke to a little bit around this, the way that artists also work with developers and work, with, work within these regeneration processes and, um, and that kind of instrumentalisation of their work. Uh, and instrumentalization has become a kind of you know terrible term, and it's this awful thing that we're supposed to be resisting. But uh, there's also got to be pragmatic about it, and it's it's surely better to be in that conversation than not. So um, I only used the word once. For yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I, I had it written down many, many times. In an attempt at brevity. Yes. Um, but no, in fact, it's ex- I think it's extremely important. <laughs> I think if people don't quite get what artists do, it helps if they can see their effect on all of those other things that we're talking about. If you can explain the importance to the economy, if you can see the way in which art has been at the core of the development, for example, of the computer graphics, <coughs> of uh, computer games, and, and, and all the rest of it, I think it helps. Uh, I think if people begin to understand that art is, really is helpful to health. Mm-hmm. That would uh, key in with the current obsession. I think that placemaking and all of those things that I mentioned give an opportunity for artists, and not ev- every artist wants to do it, some do want to uh, confine themselves to, to their studio and just to produce work, and I entirely understand and respect that. But for those who are able to get out and engage, in these ways. I think that what they can do is to broaden people's understanding of art's role in society and culture. And I think that's important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. I'm, I would agree with that. I think there's, I think there's a lot that, that can be done that um, sometimes is maybe done a little bit as an afterthought. Like, I wonder how many people go into our college thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to be the kind of artist who comes out and works on public spaces and making sure that they're the most creative and interesting space that they can be. Or, you know, how much steerage there is toward, toward you know, thinking about... And I, and I don't... And I would hate to see that as a kind of a, an instrumentalist kind of interpretation, actually, because I think it's really important how we live in our cities... Um, and I think it's really important how we build and construct our cities. And one of the things we're trying to do is, I mean, we've created a culture vision for the Royal Docks. The Royal Docks is a kind of huge area of London around Millennium Mills and around the city of London Airport. And, um, and it will be developed and there, are, there will be lots of housing there and it's actually not very far from anywhere. And, but what we would like to do is make sure that that kind of artistic production and is absolutely embedded at the very beginning and throughout every single thing that happens in that scheme. And for that, you need artists with a particular set of talents, actually. And, you know, how many, how, you know, and, 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 and maybe a particular point of view. And some of that is about working with community and with people who, who live somewhere. And some of it is about applying a different type of thinking to architecture and, and, and maybe public space and, and you know, you know, some of it might just be someone who has so many brilliant ideas you could put them in front of anything and they could do that. But I think, you know, there is, there, there, there are kind of these, there, I think there just are different ways to think about kind of artistic practice and how it's relevant 
um, in in the kind of a in the construction of a community and the construction of a city. Um, you know, I guess I don't know enough about in a sense how how our training works to you know how much thought there is or how much kind of leadership there is in those fields. But I do think there are these very powerful opportunities to to be, you know, for, for culture brokers, you know, for people who will live in that in that space between people who are making places, developers and other cultural organ you know, arts organizations who could inhabit them and, and you know who brings those people together and who makes sure that the spaces that are being built are the right ones to suit those people and so there's a whole there's a whole kind of segment here that that is going on I think that is actually an area of opportunity. On, on the subject of um, artists' expectations when they go to into art school, having spent my life teaching in them, they are admirable, wonderful to be nurtured and mostly doomed. <laughs> so the fact that people end up doing stuff in the ways that we're talking about, working on public sculptures or working on uh, <coughs> training projects with people recovering from mental health problems or whatever it is, seems to me to be a better fate than stacking shelves or um, many of the other jobs that the artists who on average earn 10 grand have to do in order to survive um, in the city. It seems to me that we need to look at the whole system again and that all of that is mutually um, supportive. Back in the 1970s, um, as ACOVA was, was developing, there was a big debate uh, between those people who saw those of us who were interested in those instrumental uses of art as misguided social workers. The misguided social workers, of course, looked upon them as ivory tower wankers. <laughs> so my position was, actually, we need to embrace all of that because, actually, you're mutually supportive. Those who are dealing with those instrumental things, what they're doing is broadening a perception of what, what art can be and increasing support, whereas those who dedicate themselves to work reach perhaps some of the highest pinnacles and uh, they get the promotion and they get, have the, the achievements which are so, uh, so much respected uh, by those who see public adulation as a, a, and large wealth as, a, as, a, as an objective in life. But I think that if you look at the system as a whole, that uh, we were quite right to say, we're not interested in that debate. We're all artists. We're all involved in it together. I wanted to come back to something you said about the economic impact arguments that are quite well understood. And I agree, I think they are quite well understood. Uh, last week, uh, John Kiefer, at the talk that we did here, John Kiefer said that um, he was, he'd seen some study or he'd seen some report or something about um, uh, culture and presenting culture to politicians. And that basically they've already made up their mind if they're interested or not, and they're usually not. And it doesn't actually matter what arguments you put to them. If, if, it's, if it's in a cultural context, then they're probably not going to be interested anyway. Which at the time I thought was... Oh, at the time I thought was pretty disingenuous. And I'm, given that you probably work with quite a lot of politicians, do you have any reflections on that? Do you, I mean, presumably that's not your... 
Yeah, I think, I think it is, there is, and this is kind of goes back to something you said exactly at the very beginning, which is, you know, what does, what does art mean and what does culture mean and then what does creative industries mean? Because creative industries is understood, I think, and that's largely because people think of film, in fact, and, and they probably think of fashion maybe. And now they're starting to think about gaming, and, but even politicians are a bit tricky about gaming, you know, cause, because, it, because, can, it, because it can be violent. Um, and oh, there's right. a whole issue around that. So there, there is that. But, um, but you know, I think um, it is understood that, you know, one in six jobs in London are in the culture and creative sector. Um, that's the reality. It is a growing industry. Um, it is one of the only kind of significantly growing industries uh, that we've got actually right now and it is, it is set to continue to grow. So I think we're being really short-sighted if we don't think of, you know, we have to think about how we're dealing with that and how, what opportunities are we creating for people to work in this field because that's where there are going to be jobs. You know, that's, that's the reality. So I think there is, there is some kind of quite pragmatic stuff that one can do, but it does go back to what I was saying earlier about really getting people to understand that it's more than just what comes out and goes into kind of TV production. You know, it's like, on, it's like not, not realizing that, you know, I mean, it, you know, that all the different strands that go into something, you don't just get a film industry. And, and I think what's been, in fact, what has been done very well is theater has done a really good job of this, I think, of, ex of kind of explaining how the publicly funded theater system has resulted in the success of the film industry um, in the UK. Um, because they've had loads and loads of spokespeople who've gone out and said that time and time again. And you get all the major actors coming back and saying, if I hadn't been able to go and study, uh, you know, at do work at, at this theatre, if I hadn't had public subsidy at this time in my career, I would never be in the situation as in I'm in now. Um, and I think probably what we need to do is look at all the kind of culture industries and, and look at how we can keep saying that across all of those things. I mean, one thing we've been talking uh, that Duncan and I have been talking about is, you know, we have a... We now have a kind of a, a task force for the mayor, which is about artist studios and how do we keep creating artist studio space that's affordable in London. And one of the things I was thinking about after our last meeting is, you know, should we be talking about this differently? Are, should we be talking about our research and development department? You know, is that what we're saying here? We're saying that, you know, no industry will thrive if you don't allocate a certain amount of resource to research and development. Uh, which is just purely there to find out stuff and whether you use that stuff in the end or whether you can make a commercial product out of that stuff is unclear. But the, you have to have the department because otherwise you're not going to get the ideas. You know? And, that, and that I think maybe we just need to kind of think about, rethink a little bit about, um, you know, about what we're saying really. But uh, yeah, so, and then the other thing I wanted to say is this thing about art and culture. See, what I don't understand, and I'm Irish, <laughs> as you may have heard, and I, well, I've lived here for a long time now, but I'm also half German. Um, and I, what I find interesting uh, and slightly troubling about uh, England is, uh, is that politicians really don't promote going to cultural events at all. And this is across the whole spectrum of cultural events. I mean, definitely not opera. Um, but, but also not any other stuff. And I find it incredible, actually, that, mm. that it's not... I mean, any German politician would go to the opera, you know, any day of the week. It's not a problem. It's part of life. It's part of what you are as a human, you know. There's, there's, so wh what is it about this culture that doesn't kind of um, take that to heart somehow? It doesn't promote 
you know, and it, it does go back to what you're saying, you know, it's kind of, yeah, you, it's no problem to talk about all the TV series that you watch and the box sets and stuff there, but to say that those are not connected to culture and to, to arts is completely ridiculous, yeah. obviously, you know, and to pretend that there's no connection between the two. Anyway. Yeah, I was, I was talking to an artist on an unrelated project for ArtQuest, and she was saying that she'd done a, a project in Italy, and when it was launched, the mayor turned up and all these local MPs turned up and they all wanted their photo taken with her shaking her hand and said she was amazing and gave her a big kind of civic dinner and everything. And here, she's done projects here and it's like, that, no one turns up. <laughs> you know, people, audiences turn up, but politicians just want to have nothing to do with it yeah. because it does, it is kind of promoted as this kind of slightly add-on, a bit of a waste of money. Yes, it might make people feel a bit happier, but really who cares about that anyway? Um, there's something kind of there's an embarrassment about it I just and think it's a real contradiction that on the one hand you could say we celebrate the creative industries and we value all this and it's a huge econ economy and it's really growing and, and by the way the other thing we bandy around quite a lot is that four out of five people who come to London come here for culture and heritage specifically that's what they talk about so you know to say that it's not crucial you know to the existence of this city and how it operates is you know completely crazy but um, that there is, does seem to be a slight disconnect I'll just add to that, supporting culture isn't only about supporting its consumption, it's no, about exactly. supporting its production. production. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's, I mean, that's why I kind of, that, that is also why I mentioned the Fourth Plinth program earlier, because to me, that is a real, um, and I, I know it may not be kind of always talked about in this way, but it, it is a real expression of the import of that, of the fabrication process, actually. You know, the thing, what it takes to get a sculpture of that size to stand up, first of all, you know, and then That's not to fall over in the wind and to get it up on the height of the... You know, it is... that It's a story, you know, and I think it's a really valuable... Um, it's, it's a really valuable testament to creativity and to engineering and to ingenuity, yeah, in every case. And um, I do think that's a, a real... And I think, I think we do value that because it is in the centre of the city at our most kind of you know, in pride position in the middle of Trafalgar Square. And quite frankly, I've heard from lots and lots of other global cultural capitals that there's no way they'd ever be able to do something like this in their city. So I do think it's there, but it, it might need a little bit more uh, kind of discussion. But I think you're right. When it comes to its understanding that you can't have the one, you know, without, without the place to make it, you know, that exactly that. Mm. I'm going to... Uh ask one more question and then open it up uh, for, for some more questions and comments from the audience so everyone should be primed and ready. Um, I wanted just to start swinging the conversation around to solutions and what we might be able to do, we, people in this room and everyone else, uh, could do <coughs> to help bringing about some of this change and making some of these changes, particularly in, in relation to regeneration but bearing in mind that it then impacts on a lot of other things. And it was, I was struck by what you were talking about with responsibility, Duncan, and artists having a responsibility to engage with, it in a, engage with the art system in a particular way to understand it. We're sitting in an artist-led gallery and studio space, which is also a charity, so the artists who run this have had to understand how to set up a charity and how to do their annual accounts <laughs> and all that stuff. And, Artists across London, artists anywhere, but in my experience, particularly of London, uh, artists are incredibly ingenious in, in how they can make things happen uh, and how they can uh, add this huge, fresh skill set onto what, they, uh, what their core is. Uh, 
but also, equally, we have conversations with artists where they say, well, when do I have the time just to be an artist? And where, where does it... Where, when, at what point do you stop being able to call yourself an artist when you're doing something else? So the responsibility I completely support and think it's really important, but it's just how do we build that into an artist's practice? How do we encourage artists to see that that is a part of their practice, really? Because it's not just about making the work, it's about getting it out there. You're looking at me. <laughs> I, I'm looking at you. I'm, uh, uh, yeah, no, I'm not uh, asking you that question as in you have the answer to that. Yes. If you'd speak to no, it is, it is, uh, it is difficult. But that's partly why I say that we have to look, upon the, look at the whole system. I think that uh, there is space for artists who will just entirely focus on, on their production and that they can be carried along by the rest of us, as long as there are enough others. And I think the development of larger numbers and the insurance that there are lots of studios promoting those same things that we were talking about before, which actually can produce income, understanding that that can be one of the ways in which an artist supports their, their practice is by working with uh, schools or whatever, whatever it is. If we can get people to accept all of that, then it is possible to carry forward those people who have enough ideas to keep them occupied all the time. Well, in, in, which is another fantastic argument for London remaining a gigantic hub for artists, that yeah. it's not just about the critical mass of artists yeah, that you yeah. need is actually enormous, because there will, yeah. also, there will always be artists who are entirely focused on making work and just doing that bit. Yeah. So it needs a lot of other artists to do all this other stuff, to, to basically support the entire uh, lower-level infrastructure yeah. of the art world. That's basically you asked us, sorry, but you asked us at one point to be provocative, so I've not been saying anything very provocative, so I'll try now. Some artists aren't very good. <laughs> <laughs> Are very good at making art? At, very, at making art. Uh -huh. And so a bit of uh, engagement with supporting the, the field is something that they could do with some of the spare time between their rare ideas. <laughs> is that provocative <laughs> enough? Well, I'm sure Yvonne Blaswick would agree with you. She famously went to art school and said she was a terrible artist, and that's mm. why she went into mm. being a curator and now you know, director of Whitechapel. That's a, that's a valuable, there's a valuable lesson there somewhere, <laughs> yes. I think that's very true. Um, yeah, I just, I just think we need to be a little, there does need to be, um, you know, things, things change. Um, the city changes, roles change. I think the way we look at art and artists changes, maybe the way artists look at themselves. Um, opportunities change and, and I think there is something about thinking about that, you know, in a way, what, what, what you're doing and how does it communicate, you know. And, some, and you're right, there's a percentage that maybe doesn't want to communicate or doesn't want to communicate right now and there isn't, you know, and, that, that, and, that's, and that's okay as long as you have that kind of um, um, wider kind of network, I suppose. But, but I do think there's room here for us to start thinking about what are the other ways that, that artists could think about their work or that, they, that it could take a different shape or is there, you know, that, that it could, can, what can we learn from kind of tech industries and, and how they operate and how they further an idea kind of up the chain, you know, and how they... You know, I just I, I think there's a lot in the kind of idea of intellectual property and how do we use that? Are we really capitalizing on 
intellectual, on our intellectual property, on artistic intellectual property? Is there, are there other ways that we could be thinking about that? And I mean, one of the things I have come across a lot, and you will have come across this, I'm sure, quite a lot, is that whenever you talk to kind of developers about a studio, including studios in their building, when they're, when they're willing to do that, that's all great, but the inevitably you end up within a conversation where it wants to be forward-facing, it wants to be outward-facing. It can't just be a bunch of artists locked up in a building. Um, you know, and, and so there always has to be something. And I, you know, I, I don't always agree that that has to be an exhibition space or a new gallery, because um, that carries with it a whole other series of kind of issues, uh, I think. Um, but I wonder whether there are things that we're not thinking about, again, about which is about how, other, how what are other ways that we communicate work, whether, what, you know, that, that we need to think, think about, how do we incorporate these? I mean, and maybe it's as simple as a small retail outlet where artists could, who work in the building, could choose to sell their work, for example, or not. But I do think there's something here about platforms and how you, how, how people can broadcast their work or, to, you know, in different ways that I feel like we haven't quite Kind of yeah, yet. there's something it's about. Just, and it is a system failure, yeah. actually. There's something <laughs> about the, the model, even also, of artist studios. I mean, when I go to artist studios, a lot of them are always empty. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's well. a huge amount, there's enormous waiting lists for studios which are, you know, artists can barely afford, so they have to work full time to maintain the studio that they never have the time to be in. So is there, a, is there a better model around that as well? Some kind of Airbnb for artist studios or something yeah. that people can, yeah. can try and keep that incredibly valuable asset filled on a more useful and, and ongoing basis. So I, think, I think probably so. There's a lot of other models that need to kind of... I think probably so, and, and, and there are new models. But, but uh, just, just, sorry, just finish up, mm. but that then runs up against older models of, well, you have a licensing agreement or a tenancy agreement and it's you who has to be in here and you certain you know, regulations around keys or in subletting or whatever, which all would have to free up first. So there's, mm. it, again, it, it's these other older models that kind of impact on the, our ability to be able to do these kind of things. Sorry. Well, you're right. And studio organizations find themselves as intermediaries between yeah. the artists that they want to be and the world as they find it. <laughs> Uh, so that we have to deal with the developers and health and safety regulations and asbestosis and, uh, and all the rest of it. But yes, there are, there are new models. There's an increasing tendency, even within some of the older models, for people to share. Particularly younger artists, I f we find, are happier with a big space which they can uh, work collectively in than in spending more money on dividing it up into bits. At the same time, the old model is an expression of something I think which is quite important, which is that the studio becomes an extension of the soul. It becomes a part of a person's sense of identity as an artist. Maybe that will change, but for a lot of, for a lot of artists it is that. So that even if it's empty, yeah. remotely, that is the place to which they will resort. Mm. Yeah, I really wish I had one of those. <laughs> you, know, I, like, you know, I mean, it does, you know, just again, maybe to be a little provocative, but that's a real luxury, you know, to have that. I don't even have that in my head, you know, let alone in an actual place that I could actually go to, you know, as a kind of, you know, working. That's why people become artists. Mm -hmm. But, <laughs> but it is, I mean, it head. is, there is something, 
you know, there is something I think extremely crucially important about this and really important also to a city. And then at the same time, I find also it's kind of really luxurious at the same time. So it's kind of, it, uh, there is, even in myself, I find it's quite an interesting um, road to walk, really. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you just had uh, another thought there. Some of the people in some of our studios are getting on a bit. We've been running studios since the mid-1970s, which is the best part of 40 years ago. So there are quite a lot of elderly artists in some of our, some of our studios. And sometimes I see them going in, some of them fairly regularly, uh, still making art, and it's 20 years since anyone was interested in exhibiting it. <laughs> and it occurs to me that actually they're a lot happier than people in old folks' homes. Mm. They're actually continuing to make art, continuing to have that studio, continuing to have that sense of identity, is important irrespective of public attention and, uh, and wealth. Mm. So we have to have new models, but we have to take account of mm. our need, not just for a space to work in, but for all of those other psychological things. Yep, yeah, that's a good point. I'd like to invite comments or questions from anyone else. Straight up, yes. Um, my name is Alex Julian, I'm an artist, educator and uh, public engagement fellow with the World Women Trust. So um, I'd like to say thank you to all of you for a really fantastic conversation because I think I kind of 100% agree with everything that's been said. It just seems kind of very perceptive and intelligent and reflective um, and important as well. Um, since you're someone who likes anecdotes, I thought we'd tell an anecdote, which is um, I completely endorse what you said about um, the individual taking responsibility and also reaching out to politicians. So I was brought up in a socialist household and uh, very much encouraged to always sort of go to the top person first. And then if that didn't work, kind of work your way down the chain. So um, Russell's aware of this. A couple of years ago, I approached um, Sajid Javid, who was our culture minister, great culture minister at the time, um, with a little scheme that I'd cooked up, which was that I contacted a number of artists, friends and colleagues and asked them to suggest uh, a cultural activity that Mr Javid could uh, engage with um, at some point in, within a particular month and I drew up a timetable for the month so that there was something that potentially he could go to every day and it would range from being free to £50 and I also offered that someone could accompany him an, an artist or someone in the arts industry to um, maybe enable that experience a bit more um, so I spent a bit of time putting this together and uh, basically got a response from his secretary saying it had been received, but heard no more. So I think that said something in itself. Um, very recently I read a letter in The Guardian written by another former culture minister, Chris Smith, uh, about his concern on the um, potential that museums might stop charging. Mm -hmm. Um, so I just wrote a letter of support saying I completely agree with him and thank you for illuminating this to Guardian readers. Um, 
And I got a personal email response, a very personal email response to my utter amazement, which I hadn't asked for. And I think that those two experiences spoke volumes, which on the one hand with Chris Smith, I was speaking to the converted. I've always liked him as a cultural engager. <laughs> and on the other hand, you know, I genuinely uh, reached out to Sajid Javid, who was from a business background, perhaps felt unsure culturally. I certainly wasn't trying to attack him. I was trying to kind of open up a conversation with him and to hear nothing, I think, was very illuminating. So that's by way of saying, do you have any thoughts about how people like me could engage with politicians? Um, because I, th I, I believe that's where the problem is, to a large extent. Well, it's about how e even organisations, yeah. you know, our quest is an organisation, and we find it also difficult to do that kind of thing as well. Um. I guess, I think the thing I would say is that it does start at a local level. So whoever your local, your local MP is, that is the place to start. Um, because, and that, that can be, um, that can yield a little bit more, I think. Um, be also, just because they, you know, they kind of have more of a personal responsibility towards you um, by virtue of kind of location. Uh, so I, I think I, I do think that would be one, and that, that I've seen that be successful in certain, but I, you know, it may be that it's personality specific or not. But I do, I think there is a, I think there's a campaign to be undertaken here, actually, which mm -hmm. is about you know, kind of come on, mm -hmm. just respect culture. That's a very simple thing. Because I completely agree with what you said about you know the, the problem in England that culture is a sort of either embarrassment and add-on or we're just not sure about it. It's, it's suspicious not about an industry it. with yeah. 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 There's another question. Oh, there was a question actually. It was going to ask council because and we are trying to address that as we started. Fellowships for politicians, which exactly is doing what we did. Um, so, actually, thoughts about the events and things that politicians could go to would be great, actually. I liked your idea of these accompaniers um, very much because I think, our, do we do ourselves any favours, you know? I mean, actually, especially the visual arts, God. I mean, you know, having worked in art galleries and commercial galleries, uh, you know, you know, the press releases. Mm. We, all, we all know this, right? We know this is a problem. But there is something there. But how, how are we communicating, actually? And are we answering questions in a way that people can understand the answers? And I'm not saying things have to be done uh, and not sophisticated. But I, but, I mean, there is a possibility to be clearer in communicating certain things. And I think, and, and you know, there certainly has to have to be kind of concerns about being familiar in the subject matter, you know, and, and so on, that, that would, would come with. And I think just actually to be enthusiastic and passionate, because I don't, I mean, I, I uh, attach <laughs> conservative representative in the street the other day, not literally, <laughs> but, um, and he said at the end of our little encounter, he said, you're clearly very passionate about this, you know, and I thought, well, yeah, actually I am, and, and I think we all are, that's why we're here. We're not in it for the money. <laughs> <laughs> one, other, one other small thought, uh, and that is, 
because we work in many different areas, working with local politicians where we can. And one of the first things that we do is try to identify those who are already yeah, yeah. Those who already understand what the messages are and give them support. That applies to arts officers as much as it does to politicians, actually. Because a lot of arts officers feel very disempowered by this context they find themselves in. But if they have an army of people behind them making demands or sensible suggestions like yours, then that's, that's helpful. I'm just, I think we have time for one more very quick question, but we are running over time, so, but I don't care, really. So, uh, if we, we have time for one more question, comments, something else that anyone wants to chip in? I was just wondering about the, um, you were talking earlier about art schools and uh, how this conversation can be brought. I mean, to be provocative, I'm quite surprised that this conversation is maybe not happening in art school and that, that we need to set up a, a greater awareness within education. And I uh, was at the Slade School of Fine Art from 1998 to 2002 and then I did my Masters there for my sins um, uh, 2007 to 2010. Within that time, I can't remember once getting a sense of the context that I've been launched into. I think we had about one talk where we perhaps had a representative from Space Studios, um, a few others, um, a couple of others, maybe smaller, um, and that was it. And it was amazing to me that that was the limit of representation of this situation. Um, so really, I suppose, my sort of question is, how can we get that conversation yeah. going at an early stage? Yeah, um, absolutely. I absolutely share your experience of how poorly art schools deal with the world outside. Because it's being recorded, I won't tell you a story which I told uh, Russell. <laughs> uh, but it was actually about the dismissiveness of people in the art schools in which I taught for what happens beyond graduation. Absolutely dismissive. That, that was how it was. Things are changing. Uh, I am external course assessor for Chelsea. And one of the things that is happening there is that these things are being brought up. It is changing. Uh, there is very much a movement towards getting artists, getting students out of college into the art world as part of their course. So they get to understand what happens in art galleries, what kinds of community engagement projects there are, what curation actually can mean and so on. So there is the beginning, at least there, and I hope elsewhere of, uh, of an understanding of opening out to, uh, to the reality that students are going to enter. Yeah. Two things I would add to that is that ArtQuest is part of University of the Arts London, of which Chelsea is a college. So we have a kind of dual purpose to work with the wider sector and to help the, the university to understand some of these things. And I, I agree, I think things are changing. They're changing relatively slowly in some areas. It tends, in my experience, it tends to be quite personality-driven. If a tutor is up for it, then it'll happen, and if they're not, then it might not. Because it's, it's mostly elective rather than part of the curriculum. But we are, we are working to, to change that as well. And the other thing I would say is that we have another talking system failure around education uh, happening in a few weeks, which you're very welcome to come to. Um, 
And that's going to be talking with a tutor who runs, Araya Rodriguez, who runs a diploma in professional studies, I think it's called, at St. Martin's, and with a, an artist, Doug Fishbone, who also does a lot of professional practice talks in art schools as well. So, um, yeah, we'll be... So, but, yes, it's a, it's a very good point. It's a very good point. And trying to embed it is, is a challenge because art schools have this... still have this kind of odd in-between function of it's a protected time to be an artist and learn your trade, plus it's a vocational thing that will spit you out at the end to be an artist, and it's where you find the balance in that, so that's what that conversation will be about as well. Um, I'm going to cut that short now, well, cut it short, cut it long, because we are at Hamill Run, but do please stick around and have another drink, Uh, talk to any of us informally as you go, and we'll be around for another kind of 15 minutes or so, and then we'll have to wrap it all up. But thank you all very much for coming. Thank you very much to Duncan and to Kirsten. Thank you to Blocks 36. Um, and next week the talk is also on Wednesday on money and income and that's a partnership with AA and with Artists Union England. And the other thing I wanted to very quickly mention is that on, if you've not had enough of talks, on Saturday this is being launched, the Radical Renewable Art and Activism Fund, which is a project by an artist called Ellie Harrison where she plans to, in the medium term, buy a wind turbine and use the money that it generates to fund artists' projects, political and, and uh, activist projects. Yes, it's brilliant. And that's on Saturday uh, from 4 till 6 at Beaconsfield, and I'm also going to be talking at that as well. So if you've not had enough of me, then you can come to that too. <laughs> so, yes, thank you again. Thank you all very much for coming, and uh, hope to see you in another talk. Thanks. <laughs>